Welcome to Future Perspectives, the Locarno Film Festival podcast presented by UBS. I'm your host, Gabby Sanderson, and I'm here to talk with international film stars, upcoming talent, and industry game changers. Over the Future Perspectives series, you will discover secret stories and inspiring perspectives on the future of cinema culture and society. So let's begin. This is Future Spectives. Kamal Al-Jafari is an acclaimed Palestinian artist, film director and producer, and he sits opposite me now. Welcome to Future Spectives. Thank you so much for the invitation. So you work with moving and still images, interweaving fiction, non-fiction and contemporary art. You've released eight films and you've got two in production. Can you elaborate a little bit about the, your sort of method to your work, please? So I, I think I would uh, start with the film uh, Cortidatore in Pardi di Domani. Uh, it's a short, uh, which is a fourth film that I'm making uh, with already existing footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning footage that I, I found in archives, sometimes uh, on the net. Mm-hmm. I basically rework uh, the image and diverted, cinematically speaking, create creating with that a new film, a new narrative mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Your work's been shown worldwide at film festivals such as the Berlinale, Locarno, Viennale and Rotterdam and museums such as the Museum of Modern Art and the Tate Modern. Uh, You attended the Academy of Media Arts in Cologne and you now live in Berlin. (sighs) I love Berlin. How long have you lived in Berlin? Uh, Since um, 2011. It has been almost, yeah, 12. 12 years? We're 22, yeah, 12 years. I mean, talk about a city that's just jam-packed with arts, history very multicultural, very innovative. How do you like it? I still like it. You know, uh, when you live in a place uh, for over 10 years, you start start having a lot of doubts, you know, should I go somewhere else? Should yeah. I? By kind of starting to like it again, uh, it's a place which offers a lot in terms of, um, I think, first of all, the diversity of people living there now in a place like Kreuzberg. I mean, there are people mm-hmm. from all over, not only artists, just any kind of people, very international. And of course, it's a city with, you know, endless galleries, uh, museums, very vibrant uh, music scene. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a place that is, is, is still inspiring for me to, to live in. Despite the fact that the city has changed and um, became more expensive in the last couple of years, I can imagine so, because it's become so cool, hasn't it? That it's attracting more and more people to it. Yeah, and like all places, uh, at some point they get gentrified, discovered, and then they change. But still, Mm. I think in comparison with other, um, you know, capital European cities, it's still affordable, which makes it, you know, more accessible to people who want to live the life of an artist, right? I mean... Uh, to be able to have the the space and the time to create and to reflect. And that's the value still of a place like Berlin. 
you said that you always felt like an immigrant in your own country. Basically, um, just to give a, a historical background, mm. so in the war of 1948, most of the Palestinians uh, got displaced from what now is considered and named as Israel. So just a tiny minority uh, could stay in the country. It was almost 80% of the Palestinian population who got displaced and uh, had to flee the country. So where I come from, two cities which are now inside Israel, Jaffa and Ramle, which were Palestinian cities, now they became Israeli cities with a tiny Palestinian minority. So basically, I think what I was trying to describe there is the feeling of being born in a place which is your country and it's not your country anymore because you became basically a minority in your own place. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it's being uh, as if being, you're, you're being an immigrant in your own place, which is a very, psychologically speaking, is, is, is very strange. The inspiration behind recollection. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think this is something that... Um, in a way, this experience made certain type of films. I wouldn't say it's a it's a destiny because you know you always have a chance to do other things, which I, I'm doing now as well. Mm. But recollection, which was in fact here 2015, it was in Lucarno 2015. It was a film that I, I it was the beginning of the work I described before working with already found footage. Yeah, but then you removed the. Actors, actors. Yeah, 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 yeah. I removed the actors. So basically, I collected around uh, 40 uh, fiction films, Israeli and American fiction films shot in Jaffa, my hometown. Narratively speaking, there were films that completely excluded the Palestinians. They didn't exist as part of the story, let's say. And ironically speaking, these same films ended up being the only documentation left of the city. Right, which how it was it, before it got destroyed. Yeah, the forgotten Palestinian city. That's yeah. that's. So I, what I did basically to narrate this other story in the background because I found a lot of people uh, walking around in the background, I had to remove the actors from the foreground and create a new film, basically narrating the the story of the people at the edge of the frame, philosophically speaking, mm. and uh, also to kind of. Uh, reconstruct the city that no longer exists in reality but only existed in fact in this found footage. I've seen some of it and I just was it was very powerful yeah and it really conveyed the message you know. Yeah I mean it's it's a kind of work that um, I think was for me important to create because I felt that it's a story that wasn't told and it is really ironical because whatever you do you can never really hide things forever so this is the power of cinema as well that things can be found in fact in images if you are paying attention mm. you will find many things that usually we don't pay attention to when we watch a film mm. an unusual summer this was created from surveillance camera material recorded by your dad. Yeah. So was it just like literally, you know, the security footage? Yeah. He, he's not, is he arty? No, no. no. I mean, um, you know, I, I was visiting um, my, my family uh, house and my sister uh, was just telling, you know, uh, telling me, uh, it takes you so long to make a film, you know, just jokingly and saying, there are these VHS tapes that you should have a look at them. <laughs> okay. I asked, what, what VHS tapes? I didn't know about it. And then she told me the story that someone in the neighborhood used to break my uh, father's car's window again and again. And 
Eventually, my father got this camera and installed it, directed at the car to find out who is the culprit, you know, who's the person who's who's breaking his car window. Yeah. And... Uh, Did he find out? Yeah, it was, you know, it was just a crazy guy in the neighborhood. Right. But you he recorded one month long well, that's a lot of the footage. car and everybody who passes by. You know, I, I made a film with it, which is basically doing a kind of investigation about the man who throws the stone. So I was kind of a detective and, you know, watching the material and constructing, you know, looking for him. And yeah. through that, basically, I was able to, you know, tell endless stories and show endless characters that pass by uh, the car. And also, you know, the daily life of my family, because mm. the purpose of the camera was to, to catch this, uh, this person. Yeah. But the camera, as I was saying before, you know, it films everything. Right. Not only what is intended for. Yeah. That must have taken a long time to kind of go through. No, this was crazy. I, my friends were telling me you're crazy. You're watching all this material, like, because it was fast forward, you know, like surveillance camera. Yeah. So I have to slow it down to, you know, properly watch. Wow. And it took me weeks and weeks. <laughs> yeah. The kind of things you go through to make a film. Yeah. But it, it was important because through this process, uh, at some point, I realized, okay, I have to, because I was watching and I was looking, searching for this man throwing the stone. Mm. And I couldn't find him the first time. I watched, you know, like 30 hours of material and I couldn't find the person. Wow. And it's I said, okay, like I can't. Big brother, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is in a way. Uh, so at some point, I, I start, I rewatched and then and started taking notes of everything that is happening, like a detective, right? I mean, who passes by the car, who's looking at the, who, who touches the car you know and things happening at night and of course when you have the camera for 24 hours you catch so many things that usually you don't see because you are sleeping or eating or working or yeah. um so th these notes that i have taken which were at the end of the process of watching and uh, viewing was like almost 500 pages of notes that is gonna become a book they helped me to structure the film and to create this film, which is in a way kind of detective right. uh, film, you know, right. about every step. Uh, who you... passes by car, who touches the car, who looks at the car. And then I tell stories about these neighbors and characters at, you know, daily life. Oh, wow. So the yeah. crime scene is becoming a book in the future. Yes. Amazing. When? I'm still working on it. Okay. Uh, in between the films I'm making, but... Watch um, the space. Is it true that Palestinian filmmakers rely mainly on European funding and the most successful Palestinian films are co-produced by France? The fact that, you know, Palestinians are stateless and there are no really uh, national funds, uh, basically you end up relying on funding coming from uh, from abroad, from mostly from Europe and, you know, different uh, uh, funds. Myself, I'm living in Germany, so um, my films were Financially speaking, they were financed by German funds. I'm German myself. Um, I have a German citizenship. Mm -hmm. And also I received some money from uh, from France. But in fact, I, I always have a small funding coming from Palestinian resources, whether small funds or even private people that love my films yeah. uh, and want to promote art, Palestinian art. Mm -hmm. But it's always very minor, you know, it's not... Um, a big portion of the budget, which is really for me very important to have this participation. Yeah. 
But it's true, you know, it's a situation where as a people still under occupation after all these years and not being able really to be a normal situation where you have, you know, different institutions and many of the Palestinian films and Palestinian art in general is a, I would say it's a displaced art and um, film. Mm. So people are scattered everywhere. Mm. That's the condition right. of, of the people. So for you, the Locarno Film Festival 2022, you brought your new short film, Paradiso, would I say 31, 108? Yes. Am I? Yes, yes, I would, because it's the Latin symbols. Yeah. So this film, just to say a few words about it, it's a film made with footage that I found, again, shot by the Israeli army in the 60s and 70s. How did you find that footage? I found it uh, actually online. Uh, mm. There are many footage available online now. I came across it because I'm working on another project and I, I thought, okay, this is a material that I would like to make a shot with. I worked on it for the last uh, four months. It was quite fast making this film. And it's basically a footage which was made by the army making the soldiers act for the camera. So it wasn't training being filmed, but rather uh, really creating a film and scenes and directing and casting these soldiers to play war. There were around four films that I found, which I used to make my own film. Yeah. And basically what I did, because they were playing war and the acting was quite ridiculous. <laughs> right. Um, I, I basically continued playing. Okay. And the film is a combination between almost ready-made, mm. things that already were good, I didn't change them, mm. and things that I diverted and, and changed. But basically I continued to play and it's a film that, it's quite comical, uh, tragic, comic. Mm. And, um, and this is under the umbrella of you investigating how we can reinvent images from archive images to shape the future. These films are the ones that I made in the last couple of years using found footage. It's true, you know, when you use found footage and archive footage, they're always coming from the past. They're not about now, but actually they, you're able really to read the future once you start really working on them. For example, this film, Paradiso, what you see there, because they are playing war in the desert, mm -hmm. it's an endless war against an enemy that is not to be seen because they are just bombing the desert all the time. And the officer is, is giving orders to his soldiers, attack the enemy behind the, the hills. Now, you, you look at this and you think, this, this is like unreal. It was meant for the camera acting yeah. and, and to promote the, 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 the army and right. to kind of uh, show young people at the time how fun it is to be in the army. Yeah. Mm. But when you look at it today, and uh, surely this is uh, material coming from the Palestinian-Israeli context, but I think it's universal. Uh, I, I think sadly we, live in, we still live in a time where humanity didn't manage really to find a way not to use all this power and armies and to overtake other countries like in the case of, of just now, just uh, Russia. Mm. Yeah, I think the film is, is turning the image against itself. Yeah. It's an anti-war film. I wonder if, do you think the soldiers were in, uncomfortable 
being in front of the camera or do you think they kind of enjoyed it? No, they enjoyed it so much. This is the <laughs> the, the kind of tragic comic part that you see these guys, you know, young people really having fun playing this war. Right. It's like video games, you know? I mean, when you see this, yeah. you think, okay, this is in fact a pre-video games. Mm. Yeah. Look into the future. I'm very, very curious where you're going to take your work next. I know you've got something coming out in 2023. Are we yeah. allowed to talk about that? I actually have a film uh, also in Venice now, uh, a long uh, feature that I'm editing. Again, found footage. It's in the um, working progress competition. I'm hoping to finish this film uh, end of the year. But 2023, I'm preparing for a fiction film, which will, you know, uh, mark my return to filming again. I mean, I enjoy very much working with found footage, and but I really would like to move forward and do something else and also to change gears in terms of my own work. All I can say is it's a fiction film that it is partially a film noir, a love story, something like that watch this so space. we'll see i have to ask you before we wrap things up about the future of attention you participated in a 24-hour live conference on the theme of attention so this is where 24 invited speakers are exploring the future of attention can you give us a bit of an overview about what your hour entailed because people can go back and watch it on the replay yeah. on twitch this question is quite uh, quite difficult to answer, you know, for any filmmaker, you know, how to deal with the today where things are, they, they are so fast. Yeah. And does it factor into your work as a filmmaker? Like, do you think, right, I've got to make sure that I have the attention of my viewer from start to finish? Or does that even come into consideration when it's your art? I think you kind of embed it in your own work with time. I don't think the way is really to do something which is calculated. Mm. Surely this is not the way uh, mainstream like Hollywood uh, industry thinking. works because yeah. it, it's very calculated. Yeah. But I think it's very important to really listen to your inner voice and what is it that you really would like to express and share with others. Because finally, what is art? What is cinema? It's really about sharing what you uh, you know carry inside you what you would like to express with others otherwise why would you make a work right i mean you make it to show it mm -hmm. and i think with time you reach really uh, a place where you have a balance between you know what you want to tell what can be understandable or rather felt by others and it's not scientific i mean you cannot really make a study that's why it's difficult to make good films mm -hmm. It's not easy. I mean, it's something that you, you work a lot on and it's um, it comes with accumulation. You know, it's a process. Kamal, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. There's only one thing left to do. Let's roll your closing credits. What movie have you watched most in your life and why? Oh, I have to think for a second. Um... I think uh, the one that I watched uh, many times was made by the director uh, Sami Liang, a Taiwanese filmmaker. Uh, it's, it's his first film, uh, Rebels of the Neon Gods. It's difficult for me to explain why exactly <laughs> I have been watching this film. I mean, I, I rewatch it at least uh, once a year, since a couple of years. And I use it a lot in my teaching, uh, when I teach. 
It's become like an old friend. Yeah, in a way, and uh, it's set in Taiwan. I mean, never been in Taiwan, so but there's a lot of similarities uh, in terms of the setting and the. It's a film about a boy studying for his exams, living with his parents, and it's about his desire to escape from this situation and uh, hang out with criminals in the neighborhood. And he starts following them, becoming part of this very exciting scene for him as a teenager. Uh, but the way it's made is really very organic, and it was made with non-actors. And uh, what's really amazing uh, with such a film that even 25 years since it, it was made, it's, it's still modern and uh, very strong. If you could have the Piazza Grande to yourself and some of your chosen friends, what movie would you most like to watch on the big screen? Well, a film that I, I um, love a lot is Playtime by Cassavetes, John Cassavetes, and it's a film that would be really incredible to watch in the Piazza Grande. I mean, it's a classical film. I mean, one of the masterpieces of our time. You're directing a movie about your life. What would the opening and the closing scenes look like? <laughs> it's very difficult to answer this. I haven't thought about that okay, yet. You I'm not at this stage to direct a film about my life. <laughs> <laughs> Cliffhanger for later. Uh, is art shaping society as it should? I think it's it's uh, it has a part in portraying society. I, I wouldn't say shaping society because as much as we want that people, you know, watch films and uh, look at art and go to museums, it's still something which is very limited in terms of, yeah, the access um, that people have to, to, to art. For any form of art is really to have the dialogue. It's all about having a dialogue. It's true, we live in, in a very, uh, I would say, really fucked up world, in fact, that where tragedies repeat themselves, yeah. uh, but we cannot give up. I think we have to continue to look for a way to live together, and art should give us hope, always. What's the biggest challenge today for cinema and culture? For me, for cinema, biggest challenge is really the financing, is the yeah. money. <laughs> it's really to find the right people to work with, give you the support you need to make the films you want to make. It's always a challenge, you know, it's something that I think even big directors uh, still struggle with. Uh, you know, unlike other forms of uh, art, like, you know, whether painting or, or writing, to make a film you really need need money. I mean, you could make a film with less money, but you can. You always need uh, mm. the means to make them. I think Woody Allen once said, yeah, all I want is someone to come and give me this $1 million and leave, and then I will give him the film in a year. But, you <laughs> it know, it's... doesn't work that way. Yeah, it doesn't work this way. So I think it's really, for me, it's always a challenge how to find the funds to make something that I would like really to make and to be free at the same time. Mm. What are your hopes for the future of film festivals? I think we are, in a way, um, already in the future in terms of the things that are happening at film festivals now, where, um, for example, this year, uh, the festival, after these two years of the pandemic, you see you know, how uh, wonderful it is to see people coming back. The Piazza Grande is great. And I think the film festivals should continue to commission work by artists, this is what they did this year, I think, for the 75th anniversary, um, and to have an active participation in creating films, not only just showing films. 
because film festivals give then really a, a complete freedom to these directors to make to make the films they want unlike let's say uh, commission editors from tv or this big big online platforms where always the question is the market and i think festivals they work on a different level where it's about really a celebration of cinema and art and something that is really uh, open and less uh, constrained in terms of language. Last question. As the Locarno Film Festival is all about freedom, do you feel free? Yeah, absolutely, yes. I mean, I'm, I think that at least my experience working with the team here, with the curators here, I think they are very open to any form of, of filmmaking of course it's a question of taste sometimes if they like something or not but i think it is a place where you have all different voices existing coexisting kamal al jafari thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to future perspectives the locarno film festival podcast presented by ubs If you enjoyed this episode, you can support Future Perspectives with your review and subscribe on all the major podcast platforms. This series is created and produced by Brand Audio Media.